You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that overcoming all carnal desires may enter upon a spiritual life, understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life giving spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here. Annie Mitchell, how are you doing? I am doing fine, Father Hezekiah. How are you doing? Well, it is the first Sunday of Advent, so, you know, I don't know. We got to be doing well together. We're beginning a journey right now together here on Sunday Gospel Reflection. So put on your, uh, you know, spiritual crash helmet because um, we're getting started a little fresh start. You know what I love about our faith is that it is always a newness. There's always like, like baptism is never ending, right? And whether it be confession or be the beginning of the liturgy or beginning of a feast day or beginning of a, a festal cycle, it's always new. Like there's always... God always gives us an opportunity to get back on the bus. You know what I mean? Yep. So here's the opportunity today to get back on the bus. If you yeah. fell off the wagon, I can't remember. Is it on the wagon's good or bad or off the wagon's good or bad? Where they, you know what I mean? We're going yeah. and you got to get on because we're going to the kingdom. That's what we're doing here. Sunday Gospel Reflection here. First Sunday of Advent. Annie, give us our biblical passages. On the ICC wagon. I'm going to try to keep myself calm today because I'm a little riled up. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell or not, but uh, but let's let's do this. The first Sunday of Advent, we're going to start with a prophecy of Isaiah. Annie, give it to us. Yes. The first reading for the first Sunday of Advent. By the way, we are now on lectionary cycle year A, starting this weekend. It's Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Our responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 122. The gospel for the first Sunday of Advent this weekend is Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 44. And our epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Mm-hmm. I saw mm-hmm. you grabbing something from your shelf there. I was, I just had to go grab the, um, to find out what the, what the gospel reading was, um, uh, for it was in the old calendar, right? Because oh, sure, you know that yeah. the, that the, I shouldn't call it the old calendar, the traditional calendar yeah. in the Roman lectionary was a one year cycle. Mm-hmm. We didn't have this three year cycle, right? But the idea was to give people more an exposure to the whole of the scriptures rather than just a, a more of a limited thing. You know, I'm I'm not a big fan particularly of the three-year cycle because it, it's rather cumbersome and I think poorly assembled. By the way, you can grab hold of a great book by Cardinal 
not Cardinal, Monsignor Klaus Gamber called the reform of the Roman liturgy. And in this book, he has a critique of the lectionary as it stands today. Uh, for whatever reason, whatever it is, okay, the old passage here was Luke chapter 21. But nevertheless, the nature of the passage is the same. Okay, yeah. from Luke to Matthew, the themes are the same. And of course, in the mass before the Novus Ordo, the epistle was, um, there was never an Old Testament reading. Let's just say that. Nevertheless, there were passages from uh, Vespers and things like that that would have picked up these Old Testament themes from the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm just scanning here an excellent series by Dom Prosper Garanger called the liturgical year. So yeah, if that's you're like in, a million dollar set you got back there, right? Sweet. My dad bought it for me. And it's really good. If you're into the extraordinary form, right? The the, the traditional mass, you got to get a copy of this. It's a great guide to the spiritual life. Excellent, excellent collection. And uh, he quotes here from, from Isaiah. And we're looking at Isaiah. That's why it jumped out at me. Hmm. That's right. He says that from the night office for the first Sunday of Advent. Draws from Isaiah. So the lectionary, the new lectionary in parts has some problems, but you know, they weren't inventing a whole cloth, just trying to give a little bit of a broader thing. And in this case, they actually follow the themes of the biblical text that were in the tradition. Anyways, I just had to check it out. So here we are. Cool. Isaiah chapter two. Yep. And we'll start with verse one. Hopefully people go. had enough time there to uh, open up their Bibles yep. and get to this place. All right, here we go. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain and raised above the hills. All nations shall stream toward it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us climb the Lord's mountain to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways and we may walk in his paths. For from Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and impose terms on many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not raise the sword against another, nor shall they train for war again. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the lord now father just to kind of get our bearings once again remind us mm -hmm. uh who isaiah is you know when he's prophesying and the like and also well i mean i guess we're talking about this in a novus ordo context why is he so popular during advent uh okay uh which direction we go with that one so there's a lot of questions there but uh why is it so popular in advent let's just take that and get that out of the way because isaiah has a number of themes which are picked up isaiah is the second most quoted book of the old testament in the new testament so mm -hmm. of those quotes from that, that jesus says the the you know things like that picked up by saint paul and so forth uh, isaiah is only only second to the psalms that, ah. which tells you how important the psalms are yeah. to God's people, right? But Isaiah, why? Because he has a uh, number of prophecies which can only really be understood in light of Jesus. Like, uh, pro So Isaiah is prophesying the coming of Christ, and those themes are picked up, and those prophecies are picked up and interpreted as prophecies of Jesus. For example, in 
Isaiah chapter 7, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, right? We all know that mm-hmm. passage, right? Picked up in the gospel of Luke. And so um, Isaiah is very popular because of his prophecies of the coming Christ. But, but of course, what do we always do? We say, wait a minute, I want my historical context down, right? It's not that Isaiah or the prophet can't talk about Jesus coming as though he can't speak about the future, but the goal of the prophet, the prophet, a prophet is not a foreteller of the future. I think that's the most important thing to say, right? The prophet is speaking the truth. That's, that's what a prophet does. He's, he is a, he's a channel of God's voice. And in, in being a channel of God's voice, he speaks of things past but when he speaks of things in the past, he usually gives meaning to them beyond their historical appearance, right? So this happened, but you really need to see what's going on behind, be underneath it or, or the bigger picture, right? Is what the prophet will tell you. God's view of the historical event. He then will speak in terms of usually of warning of current events, which Isaiah does all over the place. We're going to see in a second. And he'll speak of things coming as the answer to the current problem. Hmm. oftentimes giving hope to the people that yeah their rulers are god forsaken heathens yeah their neighbors are you know i don't know i'm sorry just uh, california right yeah your neighbors are smoking marijuana and are you know involved in all sorts of moral decay uh, you know but god will be victorious and their houses will be destroyed yeah, so, right. so that's kind of the way the, that's the, way the, the prophet kind of works. And Is that so, how you uh, talk to your neighbors over there in California? Yeah, exactly. Okay, Isaiah <laughs> chapter 6. Yeah, you and my neighbors. Someone's going to forward this to my neighbors. And see what he was saying about you? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 6 gives us the calling of Isaiah. So chapters 1 and, and, and following, we'll take a look at. They almost come across as random they're not random if you see the context, but it is the prophet kind of being prophetic in his in his proclamation. And he's like, you're all going to hell. God's going to be great. Repent. There's going to be victory. He's back and forth all through these early chapters. But then yeah. in chapter six, we have the, his calling. And, and so it's important to go back there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled with the temple. So Isaiah has a vision of God in heaven. Yeah. Mm. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Okay. When we're in church, we're singing holy, holy, holy. Here you go. Okay. We are singing. We're literally at the throne of God. And we are singing with the voice of the angels. So you're understanding the Eucharistic liturgy and this part of the liturgy you're entering into. You are standing side by side with the angels surrounding the altar of God. Yeah. And the the foundation, the threshold shook as the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And so there you go. You see, if you have liturgy without incense, it's invalid. Yeah. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. This is Isaiah speaking for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay. Now focus upon those. I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips because Isaiah is prophesying during a very difficult time 
in the life of God's people, which we've talked about a lot, but usually we talk about it in the Babylonian and post-Babylonian exile time period. But here, in this case, we're going pre-Babylonian exile to the crisis, which is about to take place, right? So Isaiah is all about the crisis. He's, He's saying, look out. It's coming, you know, and so anyways, but verse six is very nice. Then he flew one of the, then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are forgiven. Very beautiful, by the way, because it becomes, this becomes a prophecy, an image, a type of the Holy Eucharist, which is going to cleanse you. And so the image of the angel with the tongs and the coal is a type of, is depicted oftentimes in our church, is a type of the Eucharist being given to the faithful. Um, And in fact, in the Byzantine tradition, when the priest receives from the chalice, the next, once he receives from the chalice, he drinks three times from the chalice, says, behold, this has touched my lips, it will take away my iniquities. And, and he says this both then and at the conclusion of the communion of the faithful. So remembering Isaiah's prophecy about what is taking place now, this cleansing of the soul at their ends. This is a great line to remember, by the way, you're walking back from communion. Behold, this has touched my lips and will take away my iniquities. Now that that's kind of, that's the calling of Isaiah, but of course his calling happens within a, an, within a context. I already mentioned a little bit of that context. But remember, when you're in a prophet, where are you going to go to find your context? Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. And here you go. The, um, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. You got your Bible open, Annie? I Not do that indeed. stupid phone you got over there. Isaiah 1, 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and the saintly king Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right. So here's he's living during this time period. You can go back to Second Kings chapter 15 and begin reading from Second Kings chapter 15 for the following chapters to get the time of these kings and their historical their story. But Father Hezekiah is going to give you the what's it called? Crib notes? Crib notes? Something? Yeah, I think that's right. Cliff notes. Yeah. Cliff notes. There you go. Cliff notes. And that is, it ain't pretty. You know, it ain't pretty. Look at, look at, look with me. Turn with me to Second Kings chapter. Well, I said chapter 15, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look at verse 13, you're going to see Uzziah, king of Judah. If you look at verse 29 and following, right before the end of verse 29, he carried people captive to Assyria. So there's your Assyrian conquest of the northern tribes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Isaiah lives just before the conquest of the Assyrians, he lives through that. He sees the North get conquered and he sees the South become a vassal to the Assyrians. It's all hell is breaking loose. And why is all hell breaking loose? Because in second Kings chapter 16, (laughs) it's not pretty. Look at this in the 17th year of Pekah, King of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20. Now, Ahaz mentioned that list in Isaiah 1 mm-hmm. 1, right? Right, right. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now, you think the Bible's going to stop there. It ain't as his father David had done. 
but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now stop again. Remember, what are we talking about now? Israel, the northern ten tribes. Yeah, yeah. David his father? No, but he's David is his great great grandfather, right? It's whatever you want generation. So. What does it mean to be, walk in the ways of the kings of Israel? It means to 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 bad news, right? Israel, the northern ten tribes that broke from the throne city, and then began worshiping false gods and doing all sorts of crazy things, and they set up the golden calf again in the north. Okay, it's, it's bad news. So here you go, verse three. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his sons as an offering according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under the green trees. And so I don't think we need He's to go any further. Dude. Yeah, you can keep reading. You can keep reading chapter 16 if you enjoy that kind of stuff. It's bad news. But that's what's going on in the life of Isaiah. Now, Hezekiah, the saintly king Hezekiah, comes and does a reform, but Hezekiah is not, I'm sorry to say it, but he doesn't bring about everything you would have hoped for. How about that? Sure. Um, and he himself struggles a bit in his, in his walk with the Lord. But Isaiah sees all of this stuff. And we're going to go back now to chapter one of Isaiah. And then we're going to look at chapter two very quickly in a passage that is given to us so that we can understand what's being said. So we're going back to chapter one. Look now with me to verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people does not know, does not understand. Ah, sinful nation. O people laid with iniquity, offspring and evildoers, sons of deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Okay. Really starting off on the right foot here. (laughs) Yeah. And so so when we jump into chapter two here, that is important because you've got to know the context, right? There's going to be multiple levels of of Isaiah's prophecy. One is Israel in the north. You're going to hell in a handbasket, right? But now that I, but once once that happens, then um, then Isaiah is going to prophesy to Jerusalem and Judah and say, I mean, actually, he is prophesying Jerusalem and Judah, but he's talking about Israel, saying, "Look out! These guys are forsaken. These guys are about. Look what happens to them. They're going to be conquered. Ha! Look, they just got conquered, right? <laughs> now you better get your act in order. That's Isaiah." And in chapter 2, verse 1, he then talks about, about Judah and Jerusalem in positive terms, but it's not all going to go well through this prophecy. That's what I want to say, is that even though you see a little bit this this bright moment that we're going to be talking about here in the text we're given, it's not all peaches and cream for Isaiah looking at Jerusalem and Judah. He's Yes, it will be raised up. Yes, it will be glorious, but only if it remains faithful to the Lord, which it does not. And so all hell is going to break loose. But of course, there's going to be a restoration in chapter 40. We get those famous passages about the, the mountains will be laid low. And so behold, and the way made for my people to return, the prophecy of the return from Babylon. Okay. But here, this very beautiful passage of chapter two, verses one through five, it talks about the mountain of the Lord being raised up. And all the peoples coming to Jerusalem and becoming obedient to the law and all of these things. 
prophecies about what's going to happen eventually. But between now and then, it's not going to be pretty. What I think is important, well, I say anything is important. Maybe you won't have questions to ask any. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the mountain of the Lord. What is the mountain of the Lord? Oh, you know what the mountain of the Lord is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the mountain of the Lord, right? You, we have to remember, and this is super important for us here in this passage, but also when we go to the New Testament and uh, goes back really to our conversation last week, which I didn't capitalize on that that much, but I want to capitalize on it now. And that is the thief and Jesus's words that today I, you know, you, I, you will be, be in paradise. paradise. Yeah. And how important that is. We did mention a little bit, the fathers of the church interpreting the thief on the uh, on the cross uh, to Jesus is right in terms of Adam, the thief of paradise, who stole the fruit, who took what was not his. And now the thief is restored. So the thief on Jesus is on Jesus right is yes, the thief on Jesus right, but he stands for more than that. He stands for humanity fallen and now restored. So fallen through Adam and now restored to paradise, yeah? And now we pick this theme up here at the first Sunday of Advent in which in which we start we begin looking at Jerusalem in this way in this way of restoration. The what you need to remember is that the people of the Old Testament believed that Jerusalem was the original location of the Garden of Eden. Now, if those have been with me for a long time, you're like, yeah, Father has guys have heard that from you like a hundred thousand times. Well, it does it bears repeating because you have to understand kind of the vision of God's people when you when all nations shall stream toward it and let us climb the Lord's mountain to the house of Jacob. And he will instruct us in his ways. These are all kind of paradisical themes of, of kind of making things right. Jehovah's Witnesses love this stuff, right? Because they're like they're all into like, you know, we all get to stay on earth and and you know hang out together and stuff like that but they, so there's I, these images of the the earth the way it's supposed to be right mm. the earth transformed and made paradisical again and this is what is being brought out here isaiah and i think when we're here at mass on sunday if we don't prepare ourselves we're not going to be able to hear isaiah properly and what's isaiah saying he says for from science shall go forth instruction, right? How to live our lives properly. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and impose terms on the on many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not rise the sword against another, nor shall their train of for war again. And so, what's the image here? Is the difference between fighting. And tilling the garden, yeah, right? These are instruments of tilling and keeping that Adam and Eve were to do before the fall. So when Jerusalem is restored and all the nations will now come to her as they, as Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, right? They're all going to come to her and then they're going to be transformed and Jerusalem is going to be a garden again, right? And everyone's going to be tilling and keeping their garden. They're not going to be sacrificing their sons to, you know, the false gods. Right. And that's kind of the theme which is given to us here in this passage. Jerusalem is a microcosm of the whole of creation. And we've said this before. We need to say it again because we're going to turn to the New Testament and see this similar. Jesus is going to speak in World War Three, end of the world terms. 
But when he's speaking in those terms, he's speaking in those terms because Jerusalem is always understood as a microcosmos. And the temple itself, the home of God, is the whole of the creation restored to its proper image likeness. You, you know, the, the high priest, when he entered in the temple, was given a command. What are you supposed to do in there when he entered into the Holy of Holies once a year? He was in Hebrew, avad and shamar. He's going to two words he's supposed to do. When you go in there, do this, avad and shamar. What are those words mean? Till and keep. Hmm. He was supposed to till and keep in the midst of a golden garden, right? You look, the holy place in, in the temple was covered in grapevines and palm trees and lilies and gourds. It was literally a golden garden. And what's he supposed to be in there doing in there? Doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. And now in Isaiah, he says, look what's going to happen. If you're faithful, right? Look what's going to happen. The, the mountains become what it was supposed to be. Um, now, well, I'm going to say something, Annie, but I want any other questions you have about Isaiah before I say it. No, I don't. You answered my last question, which was about uh, the significance of turning weapons into farm equipment. Yeah. So you got Okay. Now, Jerusalem as the mountain of God, the temple as the house of God, these are physical representations of the covenant, the meeting place, if you will. And more than that, it's the meeting. Right? Yeah. Jerusalem is the meeting right? It's, it's where the things of this earth and the things of heaven come together. You see that? Mm -hmm. So Jerusalem is more than Jerusalem. And now we got to talk about like biblical typology and, and reading beyond the historical account. These historical accounts are given to us and these physical things are given to us as revelations of God himself. So Jerusalem is called what? The bride of God. How is a mountain a bride? right? Well, because Jerusalem is God's people. No, Jerusalem's a physical place. Yes, it's more than a physical place. It's a meeting between God's people and the Lord, right? It is the marriage banquet. It is, uh, what do you want to call it? It is heaven, right? Jerusalem, we see this in the book of Revelation, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and makes and lands again on earth, right? right, right. And so it has, it's more than Jerusalem, okay? And being more than Jerusalem, the church fathers say, you know what Isaiah is talking about here? He's not talking about a mountain. He's not talking about Jerusalem over there in the Middle East. He's talking about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Look at this. St. Augustine, the central place they are all coming to is Christ. He is at the center because he is equally related to all. Anything placed in the center is common. Approach the mountain, climb the mountain, and you it's Jesus, Okay. St. Gregory the Great, who is meant by mountain of strength, but our Redeemer, Theodore of Sire. I'm amazed at the persistence of some to interpret this passage in such a way as to conclude that this is a prediction of the return from Babylon, Babylonian captivity. Which, na which nations rushed to the temple after its building? What law was given from there? God gave ancient law to Sion, uh, to, to Sinai, not Sion. And so, okay, clearly Isaiah is referring to the New Testament. Okay, and so forth. And in fact, Jesus confirms this. Let's turn very quickly to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. With me. To Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman in which, you know, he's, he's at Jacob's well. And you realize Jacob's well is at the, in the shadow of the mountain of Samaria on which the temple of the Samaritans was built. 
So right. he's standing there and there's the temple, the false temple of the Samaritans. And so here he says, you know, you've had six, you've had five husbands and the husband is not and so forth. In verse 16 and following in verse 20, the Samaritan woman says, our forefathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So you, Jesus, you Jew say it's going to, that Jerusalem is a place, right? So there's there's a conflict. Why? Because of the division between the Northern 10 tribes and Judah, right? Right. And so that conflict continues here in this passage. And verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For such the father seeks to worship him. So where are they going to worship? Where in spirit and in truth? In Jesus, right? Jesus is the place. He is the temple of God, right? I mean, that's easy to understand because he's the incarnation of God. He is in bodily form God himself, right? He is man doing with God what man is meant to do, right? Giving his his whole life to the Father. So he is the temple of God. Therefore, he is the new Jerusalem right? He is the one to whom all the nations will come, who will receive the word of God, the law of God, and then act rightly and turn their machine guns into plowshares. And what is a plowshare anyways? I, mean, here's a, I, I think it's like a, it's a plow. Yeah, yes. a plow. It's a pl- I always think of a hoe. Okay. Let's just use yeah. hoe. Whatever. The, you understand the point of Isaiah. Right. Okay. And so who's going to do that? What I love is this. And we got to move on to the gospel text is that when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus at the resurrection, she mistakes him for being the, the gardener, gardener, right? Yeah. And who's the artist? It, it's it's Giotto. Giotto has that famous that famous icon of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Oh, yeah. And he's he's got a hoe or it's a hose over his shoulder, right? I love that because this is he understood the biblical text, the importance of the fact that Mary Magdalene saw him as the gardener, which is man fully restored, right? Man doing what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden, till and keep it, right? And so why am I I'm saying all that because of Isaiah, right? So Isaiah talks about that turning our the plowshare and that's all that stuff. The war will end, the the battle between God and man will end, or between, as I say, God and the, and the devil will end, right? The bloodshed will cease that was unleashed at the fall. And so this is what Isaiah is prophesying, not just about what's going on during the Babylon exile, but he's talking at the restoration of all things, which is why he's so critically important when it comes to talk about the Messiah. Just to bring it all. Oh, that's a lot, Annie. Bring it all full circle there. Yeah. yeah. I I love this, you know, image of, you know, let us climb the Lord's mountain to the house of the God of Jacob, because I believe our responsorial psalm, correct me if I'm wrong, Father, Psalm 122 is a psalm of ascent. It is. We mentioned this, I think we mentioned this last week. I'll just say it again. You see in the Psalms there, including Psalm 122, probably in your Bibles, it has that little thing, Psalm of Ascent. These were the Psalms that were chanted by God's people as they made their way up to Jerusalem, traditionally written by David, of course, talking about climbing the mountain of God. And David, of course, didn't see the work of his son Solomon and the restoration of the te- or the, the building of the temple. And yet he talks about Jerusalem in this, in this way. I love this psalm, and it's a great preparation psalm 
for us as we approach church on Sundays, we approach the divine liturgy, and as we approach the coming of Christ in the flesh, which is, we're going to have to talk about in a minute, talking about the second coming and why we're talking about all of this stuff and like the this kind of cosmic restoration of the whole thing. When we're talking about Bethlehem, right? It's Advent. Aren't we yeah. supposed to be talking about like bells and shepherds and angels singing? And yeah, not liturgically, but here, this beautiful Psalm, I rejoice because they said to me, Psalm 122, we will go up to the house of the Lord. And now we have set foot within your gates of Jerusalem. Let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord. Jerusalem built as a city with compact unity to it. The tribes go up the tribes of the Lord. According to the decree of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord in it are set up judgment seats for the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You see how this Psalm connected to Isaiah chapter two is so rightly suited, right? Mm -hmm. May peace be within your walls, prosperity in your buildings because of my brothers and friends. I will say peace be with you because the house of the Lord, our God, I will pray for your good. And um, we need to be seeing this now as our approach to Bethlehem as our approach to receiving Holy Communion, as our approach now to, to Christmas, in which we enter now into this time period of preparation, which is ultimately our theme today. And that in going back to Isaiah, and that is get yourselves ready because God is going to visit his people. Yes, Emmanuel, God with us, is going to be born of the Virgin. And Isaiah is prophesying this coming and this, and this, uh, not only the coming of the, the downfall of Jerusalem and its restoration historically, but ultimately the coming of Christ and the rising up of the mountain, which is the church of God, God's people united to him. Well, shall we take a look at the gospel now? Let's take a look so, at it. Where are we at? Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. All right. We are headed to verse 37. Father, let me know when you're ready. I'm there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Helicoptered in. What can I say? (laughs) Actually, it's not helicoptered in because if we've been doing this together, it's it's interesting. We just finished with basically the same passage in the Gospel of Luke, didn't we? Yeah. 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 Okay, go ahead. So here we go. Jesus said to his disciples, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this. If the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. So too, you also must be prepared. For at an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. So like you were saying, you would expect to hear about, you know, shepherds and angels singing at the manger. That would have been at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, right? Um, we're in 24. We're like, I mean, just a couple more chapters till the very end of the God. What are we doing in Matthew chapter 24? What's going on here? So we've talked about this in the past, Annie, but it bears repeating about liturgy and scripture. The liturgy is, first of all, is the mm -hmm. home of scripture, right? The liturgy is the place where the scriptures are, are, are meant to be proclaimed. And, and in the liturgy, there is a, a, a unity to God's action. In other words, what has taken place in the past, that which will take in the place in the future is made present today. Today, Christ is born. Today, Christ rises from the dead. Uh, today, Christ comes in glory. Today, his kingdom, the kingdom which is to come is made present, right? The, in the Byzantine liturgy, we begin the liturgy, blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. You begin the liturgy in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? It's, in, in, it's fundamentally the same, right? Now is made present that which we expect to come in the future. Okay, mm -hmm. liturgically, and so the church, in her in her uh, wisdom and understanding, uh, celebrates historical events as happening now liturgically, because what Christ has done in His humanity is taken up into the eternal now of God, and therefore made present in us mystically, liturgically, and and so here we can begin our our preparations for the coming of Christ in the flesh for the nativity realizing that it is also at the same time, in the same action, in the same moment, our preparation for Christ coming into our lives on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, Christ coming into our lives at the end of this physical life, when I close my eyes to this world, uh, and I meet my judge and Savior, and also his second coming at the end of time. All of these become one today now. And so as we begin our journey towards Bethlehem, we also raise our eyes up. As we see Bethlehem off in the distance, we also see Christ coming off in the distance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this passage of Matthew chapter 24, which has its historical context, which we need to talk about, yeah, also has this liturgical application. Does that make sense? Yeah. Christ is coming, my brothers and sisters. Like, let's, let's be practical. You and I are on a time clock and that time clock's not growing. It's getting shorter, right? Yeah. Like we're going to die. We are going to meet our maker. And the liturgy gives us an opportunity to do now what we want to do for all eternity. And so now we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ in the flesh. Bethlehem on the day of my and I close my eyes to this world and at the second coming, all are the same divine act revealed to us in three different times in salvation history, right? We, we live in this linear historical thing, yeah? But when we come to before the judgment seat of God, all of that is gone, right? Time is a created reality, right? Okay, so the church places before us saying, get ready now. And I just, I need to stop for a second and say, get ready now. I'll say this again before our hour is done. Advent is not a time to go to parties. Advent is not a time to throw, you know, Christmas galas and cookie making know, parties, cookie making parties and Santa Claus events. No, Advent is a time to prepare yourself through fasting, through prayer, through almsgiving. Father's guys, that's Lent. 
Yes, this is the winter Lent, yeah, in which we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ, whether it be to Jerusalem, as we're reading in Matthew chapter 24, as the church plays before. You think Father has guys, you're, you're crazy. Look at what the church puts before us. Yeah. Is this not Lent? Look, chapter 24. Jesus left the temple, verse one, and was going away when his disciples came to the point and said, uh, came to him, the building of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things? You see this temple? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Hmm. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. Look at chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 25. Sorry, that was 23. 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape that being a sentence to hell? Whoa. That's Jesus preaching there because he just made his way from Galilee. We've been talking about this this whole time during our, he, right? Luke, we just were in this in Luke. Were we not over the last yeah. couple of weeks? Oh, yeah. Remember last week, Jesus is on the cross. And what does it say? They jeered at him. Why did they jeer at him? Because this is what he just told them. You sickos. How dare you? Yeah, you've been you've been watching me. You've been eating at my table. You've been pretending as though my friend, but I know what you've been saying secretly behind my back. You're a bunch of traitors, and I'm calling you out for it. And now they're embarrassed, okay? Because he just because everyone around him knows they've been doing this. They're the ones that they've been talking with. Mm -hmm. So when they finally catch him and they crucify and they jeer at him because of because of this stuff, right? So Jesus is in the temple, and now he says, this whole system of things is coming down. Yeah? And so, what? what which I, I'm sure you're going to ask the question, what's Jesus talking about, right? You yeah. wanted to ask that question, I think, Annie. I did. Well, I wanted to ask why he's why he's headed to uh, the example of Noah, too. Yeah. Oh, okay. They're good. These are actually all great questions, right? The, the, the Noah thing ties into what I wanted to say. And that is the, the flood of Noah is has always been understood biblically in like i said earlier cosmic terms in other words right. it is it's more than just a flood yeah it is the end of the world yeah. and it is also the restoration and beginning of the world so if you turn back to me keep your hand here turn back to genesis chapter nine i think chapter nine am i right i should have known that before i got on here and hit record chapter yeah seven sorry chapter seven chapter six chapter seven chapter eight okay is revealed to us here in terms of this devolution devil <laughs> the, the the tearing down of creation everything you read i'm not going through it with you right now chapter seven read chapter seven in terms of the creation story Right. Just as there was um, uh, darkness over the abyss. Right. Uh, and, and then light came. Right. God spoke and light came in. So all of a sudden the torrential rains come and the light is the, the place becomes dark. And just as the waters were separated. So the waters come back together. OK. Mm. Just as God had breathed life into uh, into everything. So that life is snuffed out. 
The whole of chapter seven is a decreation. And then there's a recreation, right? The waters part again. The ground comes forth. Man stands upon that ground and then sacrifices to God as Adam was supposed to do before the fall. The whole of the story of the flood of Noah is written in terms of the decreation and recreation. Yeah. And so in a, um, in, in, it's used now here in Matthew chapter 24 in those terms because Matthew chapter 24 is all about the fall of Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 24. Um, look at what she's talking about. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. Chapter, verses one and two. Yeah. And then he begins talking in cosmic terms about that event because the temple is a microcosm. And this all happens throughout, right? The crucifixion of Jesus happens in cosmic terms, right? There's an earthquake, right? There's darkness upon the land. It's this cosmic event, which is talked about in terms of stars falling from the sky and light and all these things. Okay. And here in chapter 24, the fall of the temple is also prophesied in the same way. Okay. In fact, verse 34, look at verse 44, 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away. This is Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly, I say, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus is talking about an historical event, which is going yeah. to happen, and that is the fall of Jerusalem. But more than, more than that's a historical thing he's talking about, but he's also talking about his own death and resurrection. He's also talking about his coming at the end of time. He's also talking about coming, your, his coming in your life. In some sense, he's also talking about Bethlehem, or at least the liturgy is, getting us ready, okay? And, and so Noah and the story of Noah fits into that kind of, that story in saying, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a total restoration of all things. And then that image that Isaiah saw, of the of the Jerusalem rising up will take place and of course that mountain rising up is the kingdom of god restored which is the church and i don't mean the church of you know big buildings in rome i talk about the church as the people of god yeah the living temple of god in which the the, the worship and spirit and truth that jesus talks about with the samaritan woman takes place hmm. yes yeah so speaking of you know, like the second coming kind of reading of this passage. Um, I think many probably recognize it as um, a passage that that Protestants that believe in in this idea of a rapture um, happening sometime in in the future. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And we've got talks on that at the Institute. I don't want to get too far too too far into it. But of course, this is what I'm saying. This is not about primarily, first and foremost, the second coming. Sure. When we get into the liturgy and we're all standing as one Catholic family, we can apply it to the second coming and things like that. Mm-hmm. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. First and foremost, talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Yeah. And what's going to happen when the Romans come and sack the temple and burn it to the ground. That's what he's talking about. We didn't want generation. So my Protestant brothers and sisters, it's a misapplication. And this is the problem. When we start reading scripture outside the family of God, you're you're protesting the very community in which this was written. So stop protesting it. Get back in the family. You'll start understanding inside the family what's taking place. Otherwise, you're going to misinterpret this text. Okay. I I, got to say one more thing about this, this phrase, the son of man that Jesus uses here which is a, 
uh, again, a cosmic uh, kind of cosmic. Journey. Can, uh, sure, son of man can refer to mankind, but here Jesus is talking about about more than that. And what he's referring to is back to Daniel chapter seven, and you can turn back there very quickly. Daniel chapter seven, in Daniel's vision of the throne of God, much like much like Isaiah's vision that we read in chapter six, I believe Isaiah, mm-hmm. right? Chapter seven. And in, in this vision, you can read all chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So this, this one who appears to be in human form, right? Right. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him. As to this one in human form was given dominion and glory and kingdom and all the people's nations and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion who shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so this this it's like human quasi divine figure appears in Daniel and is picked up in Acts of the Apostles. At, and in chapter seven, when St. Stephen is being martyred, oh yeah, St. Stephen looks up and, and notice what he says. He was full of the spirit. Chapter seven, verse 56. And he's, and this is after his big defense, by the way, of Jesus, right? Right. And they know Jesus called himself, referred to himself in this, in this way, identifying himself with Daniel. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the mm. right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice because he's saying, look, you know what you did to Jesus? You, you, you crucified him and you killed, but he's risen from the dead, right? This is what he just told them. And not only that, he's in heaven. And they say, you're crazy. And they, they, they stone him to death, right? So this, so this term, this so will also... At the coming of the Son of Man, two men will be out there. This is what will happen. Okay, so there you have it, Annie. Wow. Well, I think um, I think we can move to the epistle, which really brings. I mean, it's the the same theme here. This idea of of being prepared. Paul saying, "Now is the time to wake up from from your nap." Essentially, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Romans chapter thirteen, right? Romans yeah. chapter 13, verse 11. Go ahead. Brothers and sisters, you know the time. It is the hour now for you to awake from sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and lust, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Yeah, we can just, I mean, wrap this all wraps up very nicely here with this text from Romans, because um, this theme the church is placing before us is an Advent theme of, of preparation for the coming of Christ. Uh, I said it before, but I'll say it again. The Lord is coming. And if you want to look at it just historically, yeah, this may be our last Christmas. 
and your last preparation for Christmas, an opportunity to make yourself like Bethlehem, ready to receive the Savior. Unfortunately, most won't do that. Most will even, let's be honest, most watching this Bible study, myself included, will not take the warning words of the Lord and that of the church seriously. We'll go about our daily work and our daily lives, shopping at Costco and buying remote control cars for the kids. And at, at the end, we will stand before the judgment seat of God and he'll say, I gave you Father Hezekiah, you know, what, 47 Christmases. Maybe this is my last Christmas on earth. 65 Christmases, you know, Fran, John, 87 Christmases I gave you to get it right. Now Christmas is here. Hmm. I, I'm here. I've arrived now. And you had all of those times, that cycle of the liturgy to get yourself ready for this day so that you could behold Emmanuel, God with us. But foolish were you. And you didn't get yourself ready. And now you're standing there naked because I don't see my image and likeness. I don't see the one who has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Let me turn that around maybe and give you a positive message. And that is get yourselves ready. Father Joseph Frank Avila, my, my mentor used to say, where there is no preparation, there will be no fulfillment. Where there is no preparation, there will be no fulfillment. Or where there is no expectation, there will be no fulfillment. My brothers and sisters, now is a time that is given to us this season of Advent to put, to put away rivalry, je uh, jealousy, promiscuity, lust, orgies, drunkenness, to begin to, to begin to conduct ourselves properly. And that is why the church says, through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, to make this time a time of preparation to get ourselves ready to be the home of God. So let's make use of that time by fasting, by almsgiving, by prayer. So I'm going to challenge you right now from today forward to Christmas. What fast will you keep? Father, as a guy, the church doesn't say we have to fast. You're right. You don't have to go to heaven either. Church doesn't have any obligation to go to heaven, right? It's an invitation. Do you accept the invitation? So what do you do? Well, I, I never heard of anybody dying from not eating meat for like, what is it? From today to Christmas is like 20, what is it, Annie? 20 something days, right? Yeah, 20 okay. something days. Yeah. Okay. 20 something days you didn't eat meat. What about? What about uh, wine and oil? Those are kind of nice things to have. What about cheese? What about dairy? How about you don't put cream in your coffee? Let's make it really hard. <laughs> you know, because I know there's people out there like, no father has a guy, so I can't go there with you. No, I have to how about giving up just Christmas cookies before Christmas? I said to my, 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 um, my, I wasn't my parishioners. Maybe it was my ICC family here. I said, I said, what area of our life have we not allowed to go, allowed God to form? Like, what, what are we protecting? That cream in the coffee gets people, you know? I know it gets a lot. So what about I, uh, One year for Lent, I gave up the clearance section at the grocery store because okay. 
it came into my head that I should give it up. And I thought, no, God doesn't want me to give that up. And then I knew immediately that that's exactly what God wanted me to give up. What about very the radio? fruitful Lent. Yeah, yeah. What about yeah. the radio, Annie? What about the television? Oh, are you... Did you did you, you just know? say radio so, to me? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You are. That's right. No, listen, I'm just seriously, seriously, sit down today. Pray about that. As you prepare yourself for mass this Sunday, how is my Advent journey going to go? Right. How am I going to grow in my spiritual life in this time in which I learn to give of myself fully as God has given his life for me? How am I going to be conformed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that the one who, who comes to us in the flesh, who gives all of himself for us, will find one who has given all of ourselves for the Lord, right? He, you know, see, it's, it's, I, I, come, my friend, come. I recognize you. I recognize the image and likeness I placed in your heart on the day of your baptism. I recognize you. Come and receive that reward that I have prepared for you. Yeah. We're going to pray for all of you and uh, our ICC family as we make this journey together, fasting together, praying together, learning to give of ourselves together. And together we will behold the day of the incarnation of our God. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.